Welcome y bienvenidos to About Consent, the podcast that sparks conversations about creating consent culture, boundary repair, sexual empowerment, orgasm equality, and raising a new sexually conscious and consent-empowered generation. This is a safe, shame-free, judgment-free zone where both survivors and those who support survivors are welcome. I'm your host, Rosalia Rivera. So my next guest is Dr. Rosina Bakari, and the reason I invited her was that I met her a while ago on Clubhouse and really found her way of communicating uh, really impactful because she really understands the mindset, uh, not just the mindset, but really the full experience that a adult who is a survivor of child sexual abuse uh, experiences in their adult life and in many ways, in many aspects of their adult life, like parenting, for example. And I thought, you know, she really speaks to this community. She has her own community, which I also highly recommend. And you can find the link for um, how to learn more about that community in the show notes. And I really felt that she had to come on to talk about her work, uh, why she works with uh, survivors of child sexual abuse. Specifically, she specializes in that and really what survivors can do to help themselves step into their healing journeys, what's required to do that so that it can help you uh, in that direction. So Dr. Rosina Bukhari is a scholar. She's a motivational speaker and a social advocate. As a psychologist, writer, black belt, spoken word artist, and a marathon finisher, she certainly lives life to the fullest. Dr. Bakari has always loved writing and wrote her first book while she was a stay-at-home parent in 1994. Her poetry collection consists of over 150 poems, and she enjoys participating in open mic events, which is not something that I would be able to do because I'm such an introvert, so I have so much respect for when someone can express their art in that way. So another thing that I really admire about her, she finds her mental strength through training her physical body and uses her writing to support others in their healing journey. She is the founder and executive director of Talking Trees, Inc., an empowerment organization for adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse. And like I said, she also has another community that uh, is, is really amazing, really helping survivors process and unpack and uh, find community and support. So um, like I said before, you will find that in the show notes, and I think you will definitely want to check that out after you hear our interview. So without further ado, here's my interview with Dr. Rosina Bakari. Okay, so I'm so excited to have you on today, Dr. Rosina. So thank you so much for being here and sharing um, what we're going to talk about today, which I know is going to help the audience so much. So thanks for joining us. My pleasure. I appreciate all safe space to have uh, these essential discussions. So thank you. I appreciate you. Mm -hmm. 
Well, yeah, it definitely is a safe and I will also say brave space. Um, I really think that it takes courage to talk about these topics. And so anyone who's willing to do that, uh, you know, I stand behind, I champion. And so thank you for being one of those people. Um, and I know it's not easy to get to these places. So I would love for you to share about your journey of getting to where you are now of being able to help others, you know, because I think we cannot really help others until we've helped ourselves. And I would love to hear about your story of how that happened. Sure. So to make a long story, not as long. <laughs> <laughs> I lived in silence for 40 years. I, in way back in the 90s, before the internet, I'll say, I did make an attempt to heal when I was in trauma, as is common with survivors, we only heal when our diapers are full of poop. And so, so I made an attempt to heal. And at the time, and so I went to therapy, fairly traditional therapy. I got on my feet. This is back in the 90s. Mm -hmm. And I really kind of thought that's all there was. That's not true. I pretended like that's all there, <laughs> there mm -hmm. was. That's the truth. And I went and I got married. My husband knew I was a survivor. He had gone to therapy with me. Um, before we decided to get married. And I went on about my life thinking that love was going to fill in the gaps, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. And and it, and it seemed to, for a while, I ignored all the trauma lurking in the background, meaning I was still spending holidays with uh, people who had violated me and still living as a silent person uh, amongst my family members who knew of the violations and knew that I was in the presence of violators. That's a big thing. Mm -hmm. It's a big thing. I can't stress how much harm that does to, to survivors. And then 18 years into my marriage, uh, for a number of reasons, everything came to a head. I went into another PTSD trauma, uh, you know, um, a trigger and, Luckily, 18 years later, now there's a lot of, a lot more, I, there are some internet resources mm -hmm. that I have access to that weren't there when I had tried to heal uh, before marriage. And so I was in a, in the dark place of not understanding why I, the love didn't heal me and all those other things. And so I started, to, but I knew the answer was to live openly because I knew the reason I kept getting to this space was related to my continual relationships with violators. And so I knew that I had to live openly because I had been asked for my silence directly mm. by family members. So I knew that I could no longer continue that promise that I had made to people. And when I think about that, that sounds so ridiculous. And I know that there are other survivors out there that can totally relate, mm -hmm. but it's not until you're out of it that you understand how ridiculous even the request is, much less your willingness to, to, um, to accommodate it. And so at that point, and I already had my PhD, mind you, and a black belt and a whole bunch of other things that would indicate my success. And at that point, it was clear to me that I could not hold the secret any longer. And the only way I was going to let go of that secret was to live openly. Hmm. And so I started living openly as an incest survivor. I didn't even know what living openly meant. And that's because really there were, that term wasn't invented. That was one of the terms that I brought to the table once I, when I decided that. And I started uh, reading research journals 
because I'm used to that. That's my background as a mm. psychologist. And I found, thankfully, so much information in the research journals that made me feel okay for really for the first time in my life. Like it did two things. One is like, oh, okay, everybody has three violators or the average person has three violators. Oh, it's incest for most people because nobody ever talks about that. Every time mm -hmm. I heard anybody talk about sexual abuse, every time about the strangers in the alley grabbing kids out, you know. And so when I realized that uh, the majority of us are incest survivors, yeah. that the majority of people or the average survivor had uh, three violators uh, before the age of 18, and that the majority of us has dealt with uh, suicide ideations, all this stuff. Suddenly my experience in the world, experiences in the world started to make sense for the first mm -hmm. time, which released a lot of shame on my part. And, uh, and so I began to heal. So that's what it did for me. That was great. And then I got really pissed off because I realized how do you silence 40 million people who are having this type of experience? Mm -hmm. I was complete, and at that time it was 40 million. Now it's closer to 60 million. So I was completely baffled and disappointed and frustrated by that. How is it that people are writing about my experience, but it never filtered around to me to know to do that there was something I could do about it. And that's when I started my organization, Talking Trees, three years into my healing journey, trying to figure out, like I said, nobody was using the term living openly. That was a term I started using because that was what the, that was what was given to me uh, to begin the work. And so I wanted to one, invite people onto this journey of healing that I couldn't find anywhere. At that time, there were two organizations, both in Canada. That's all I even found online. I found a ton of stuff in the research journals. Hmm. But when I went to actually look for support stuff, it was still absent. Yeah. There were a couple of closed groups. And I'm like, well, this is the problem. Even where the help is, it's difficult to access it. Mm -hmm. I wanted to create an organization that was open access and supported people and living openly because at that point, it was really clear to me, you can heal or hide, but baby, you ain't doing both. Mm -hmm. So decide where you want your pain to come from. Because it's pain either way, right? The yeah. hiding is pain, the healing is pain. So pick your poison. But I had, yeah. I had tried I had tried the hiding already. And I didn't like that outcome at all. So at that mm -hmm. point, I felt like I had nothing to lose, right? Like try this living openly stuff and at least you can heal it. And as you heal it, it won't, the pain is different. You know, it's a different kind of pain. It's an empowering pain as opposed yeah. to a disempowering pain. So yeah. I'll say that. And so I started talking trees. One, I wanted to offer language because when I made a decision to live openly and I went to, <laughs> it's funny thing, I went to start talking about it and I didn't know what to say. Like I realized I had never formed words for these feelings and emotions and experiences in my head that I thought I would keep silent forever. So you don't form language around it, which yeah. I, so that was really interesting. So one of the things I wanted to do was be a part of formulating language, like grooming was in the, the research articles, but no one ever used the word grooming. Right. No one ever explained what grooming was. And that's so frustrating. <laughs> Exactly. Mm -hmm. So all these things that were that I was reading and research, I was really just trying to offer 
as a platform for survivors to find their way to the healing journey, trying to, so when I created Talking Trees, uh, and I started on Facebook, at that time, there were like 40 characters or 80 characters, something really small. So I was writing every single day to try and be this beacon of light for whatever survivors were out there. And then believe me, no one was ready to take any plunge into living openly. Even today, 50% of survivors never tell a soul. But yeah. that's what I wanted. I wanted people to, to have a beacon of light where they could find their way and find language for these expressions. And it was important for people to understand what happened to them for me to understand what happened to me yeah because so many of us are silent some because we didn't we didn't we don't have words for it no one ever told us it was wrong no one ever said they were sorry no one ever said oh this shouldn't happen there's a way that you can heal from this you're not invited into those spaces so how do you know so i wanted to create a space well, all of that could happen to survivors. And mm. so I created Talking Trees. It's been a long journey because it's just, there's so much shame around it. Here's the thing. If you don't, if you, like, you have to almost bump into the healing path. Yeah. You bump into it by, you know, being in some dark space because someone dies, you get divorced, your children leave, something dark takes you there. Or you have to be fortunate enough to somehow be in the right place at the right time where the right conversations are happening like this, where someone makes a connection that there's a different way to live and a different yeah. way to be in the world. And so I just was trying to be people's happenstance, hmm. you know? Well, thank and goodness. And I, I'm glad I bumped into you <laughs> because, uh, and that was through Clubhouse um, that I, and you know what, what's interesting is actually, a while back, I when I was doing research, uh, really starting my own healing journey, I actually came across um, your page and I didn't realize it. I wasn't ready at that point to join a group yet, um, but I was glad that I found it because when I, when I was doing the research, trying to also find resources for the community that I work with, which are parents, right? Um, I was looking for resources for them too. And so interestingly enough, I've shared your resource, not realizing that it was you. Um, and so it's funny how, you know, circle of life happens, but there's so much that I want to unpack of what you said, um, because one of those pieces initially that you, that really stood out to me is how you had made this agreement. You, you agreed to stay silent because people had requested that. And I think that that's a really common experience, unfortunately, for a lot of children that, you know, they they're told maybe they don't believe them or if they do believe them, they tell them not to speak up about it, right? Don't tell anyone else. Uh, we'll just deal with this on our own. Sometimes the abuser is removed from them and sometimes they're not. They think, oh, you know, now that I know that person's not going to do it anymore, that's not always the case. You know, the, that person could continue to offend and it just destroys a child because there's so much that's like this underlying message of shame, right? Don't tell anyone um, is so shaming because it's yeah. like, oh, something wrong happened, but I'm not allowed to speak about it. And you make these agreements that aren't really, um, they're obviously not fair, right, to tell right. a child to do that. But then also, um, it just creates this long term experience of um, 
you know, it's, I'm not, I'm no longer worthy of something, right? Because I'm being silenced about this thing. And so it takes something away from the child without them really understanding at that point in their lives. But then as they grow up and get older, they're still like, I'm not worthy of protection in some way because I'm this person still in my environment. They're still allowed to be, you know, this other form of hurting, right? And, and like, the psychology of that is so damaging. So first of all, that I think is like the second abuse that happens, you know, as an, as an aftermath of the physical sexual abuse. Right. Um, And I I think a lot of people dismiss that, oh, that happened a long time ago. Why are you still thinking about it? Move on. Like that person isn't doing it anymore, or maybe they've changed or whatever excuse they want to make for the abuser. Um, is just so damaging to survivors. And I think that's when when they need even more support because, you know, otherwise they just feel like they've been um, dismissed. And can I interrupt one second? Yeah, please. And they also have the worst trajectory. Mm. So three things happen in childhood. Most of us never tell. Over 80% of us never tell in childhood. And then there's a very small percentage of people who actually are identified as children. And then there's a small group that, so they tell something happens and they actually manage to have the less trauma as adults. And then there's that other group that they tell and nothing happens. Mm -hmm. So I told and nothing happens have the worst trajectory in adulthood. Mm -hmm. They're going to have more trauma than a person who did not tell at all. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I think that that uh, is something that so many survivors are living with. And I think there's aspects of culture, I think, that really play into this also. I know that coming from a Latin home, um, I didn't really, I didn't disclose until I was an adult because I had blocked memories. But my sister, for example, um, she's also a survivor. I have permission to share pieces of her story, but she she wasn't able to tell until she uh, was just out of her teens and finally shared, we were um, not, no longer uh, living with the abuser. And so it felt safe at that point, I guess, for her to share. But it was something where it wasn't necessary. It wasn't dismissed or um, negated. Like you know, everyone believed her. Um, and but at the same time, it was like nobody really knew what to do with it because they just mm-hmm. you know, my mother's also a survivor, um, and she had never told anyone, so she didn't know what to do with it. And I think a lot of times when you get to that place, it's like you just feel like you're sitting there holding this trauma that you don't know what to do with. So you just like I guess I just have to stuff this down and forget about it because nobody knows what to do with this and I you know and there's again that feeling of shame and what I wanted to um, ask you because I think this is where everyone who has gone through any kind of sexual trauma really lives with is this sense of shame of this happened to me this horrible thing happened to me that no one wants to talk about because even as a society today it's like this heavy topic that people are like move away, back away slowly, right? And they don't want to talk about it. So that just adds this whole other layer of like this this thing that nobody wants to talk about. So therefore, if I bring it up, I'm going to be like the black sheep or something, right? Right. What, what do you think we can do as a society 
you know, I mean, obviously like you and I are here talking about it and I'm always saying like, we got to talk about it. We got to talk about it, but it just feels like we're sometimes against this, this wall, you know, and what have you found is, is like a way to push past that or that you recommend even for survivors to find, you know, is it just like looking for that community where at least you can talk to people there? Or is it like, you know, just accepting that you have to be the black sheep to talk about it? Like, I know that's a really big question. So, but I would love to hear, you know, your thoughts on that, because I feel like if we can break that taboo, it would make this issue of not speaking up a lot easier. Right. When I started my organization, I, and I wrote daily for 10 years and I wrote to a community of survivors and I still do. I don't write daily anymore. I write, I still write, but not daily, but every single day, because it was clear to me that survivors needed to know that somebody was going to show up for them on a regular mm. basis. You know how to, how important that is. And the Me Too movement happened and I came to a different realization that all the words that I'm giving people or encouraging people to use to live openly, it's still really difficult. One of the reasons why it's still really difficult is because no one has showed up to listen. Mm. It doesn't matter if you give people a voice, if you don't train people to listen, mm -hmm. people won't speak even when they find the words, if they believe no one is listening. It's just like we just talked about with the kid who's told to be silent, right? When they start to speak, same thing sort of is happening as, an, as adults. Like we start to speak and people say, oh, just keep that quiet. And so I started another movement about, we call ours the, the We Too movement, trying to train practitioners. Hmm. The therapist's office should not be the only place people could go to address their trauma. They should address it in a doctor's office. Oftentimes, when there is a disclosure to a professional, it's the medical field. Yet, they have not relented to being trained to address childhood sexual abuse, even in spite of the fact that so many illnesses that we get treated for is directly or indirectly related to being a survivor. The question still is not on most medical forms. Even where it is, people don't address it. The doctors won't address it. Even if it is on their form, that's what happened to me. I'm like, well, this is ridiculous. You ask a question and then you, there is no, no one even acknowledges that you checked the box. Mm -hmm. So at some point, if in order for us to move through the shame, survivors have enough work to do. We have a ton of work to do, but we also need society to step up and mm -hmm. make space because as you know, it's generational trauma. It does. It didn't start with us. It's not going to stop with us. So until society is really ready to create space in a doctor's office and lawyers, even when we go in a in a in adult victimization, often people don't ask the question. If someone comes in for sexual assault, one of the questions should be, "Is this your first experience of sexual violation?" because they're related, not for you to feel guilty, like it's your fault, but for it to begin to get some healing for the individual and right. some help for the individual. Because as you know, every, every subsequent violation deepens the shame and subjects yeah. us to more violation. Yeah. But if no one helps you connect those dots because you live with it only in your head, that's problematic. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So yeah. I would say that it's not that we can't take all the responsibility. Our healing is related to the healing of society. It's not all on us. So yes. it's important that as we find our voice, that we start using it, not just to tell our narrative, but to tell the narrative mm-hmm. about childhood sexual abuse as survivors on the other side. Because the truth is we can't ask eight-year-olds to speak what we won't allow 28, 38, 48 year olds to speak. What? Mm -hmm. You want an eight year old to tell you what happened to them, but you won't listen to it from a 38 year old. Well, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Oh, you are. mm, Okay. Like gold, you're, you're speaking gold here. I completely agree. And and it's interesting because I never really thought of it that way. So I love how you're uh, shedding some some different angles of light on this. This episode is brought to you by Consentware, an apparel brand with the goal of creating consent culture for kids, teens, and adults. Moms can wear a canvas tote or a t-shirt that says, in our home, we teach and practice consent. Or kids can go to school with a shirt that says, hashtag my body, my rules, I'm a consent-empowered kid. Or preschoolers can wear a t-shirt that says, No hugs, kisses, or tickles without consent to the next family gathering. These are clothes that make a statement to help them set boundaries and create a culture of consent wherever they go. Learn more at consentware.com to check out all the most popular designs today. Link is in the show notes. Now let's get back to the show. It's so true. I mean, we, I hear this from parents all the time. Um, I, you know, they're, they're telling uh, other people, you know, here's what we're doing at home. And then they get dismissed of like, oh, you're overreacting or you're being paranoid or this or that, they, you know, oh, but here's the statistics. Oh, but that's, you know, happening somewhere else. It's not happening here. And you just keep getting gaslit about it. And it really is so challenging for parents to do that, especially if they're survivors. It's like, it's basically invalidating, right? What's really going on. So I think that absolutely we need to, um, I think be better listeners, um, create more spaces and encourage our kids to know that their voices will be heard. They do matter. You know, I'm always talking about this when I talk to parents about how to create, you know, consent culture, right? Like for me, it's about like dismantling rape culture. And I think this is one of those ways that we do this. And I love the we too idea. And, you know, specifically uh, just to bring it back also to what you were talking about with the medical field, um, it's in, it's amazing because I mean there's the ACEs study you know that that has proven these connections right and for anyone who's listening um, it, you know you know about the ACEs study can you shed some light on that for anyone who doesn't know what we're talking about just because I want to bring this all together because uh, you you your point is so important. Thank you. So the psychologist field forever since psychology was psychology we really connected to that the fact that what happens as an adult is connected to what happens in your childhood. Like we've known that for hundreds of years, but you can't prove it because you can't, as we say, isolate the variable, right? By the time you're an adult, so much has happened. It's difficult to say this one particular thing is related to childhood, but we've always known that good child rearing was related to quality adult health, Mm -hmm. but we couldn't prove it per se. And so then Kaiser, a, a big health organization, did this study called ACEs, this amazing thing. The psychology field didn't have the resources. So it came from the medical field 
amazing, did what psychology could never do, which just looked at when you have these experience, what is the likelihood of, for example, everything from vision? What is the likelihood that you won't see well? What is the likelihood that you'll develop disease? What is the likelihood that you'll be a smoker? What is the likelihood you'll be pregnant before age of 18? So it looked at all of these medical outcomes because those you can isolate. It looked at all these medical outcomes and related them to how many negative childhood experiences you had, which is what the, ad, the ACEs is, adverse childhood experiences. And so they looked at nine adverse childhood experiences, including sexual, uh, sexual violation, uh, emotional abuse, uh, physical abuse, uh, appear, having, a, having a parent who was physically abused, even if you are treated well, so to speak, having someone in pr go to prison, having uh, mental health issues in your family, and then a couple others. Like even divorce. What was divorce? Yes, divorce is a big one, or being or single parenting, and so, and so they looked at these nine experiences as adverse childhood experiences. What was interesting is that they just looked at them as a whole. They didn't look at anything in in particular. Just looked at the number of these. If you have three of these, this is how likely you are to have negative adult experiences. What they found was four was the magic. Uh, so, like a negatively magic number that you that most people have the resilience to deal with one or two, you know. But when you if you hit the number four, mm -hmm. then it was going to be darn near impossible for you to ease through adulthood without any related effects. So here's what ACEs didn't understand that they didn't count because people often don't count. So oftentimes it's just 10 little, nine little questions too, right? Mm -hmm. So did this, did this. Oftentimes, if you are a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, you only check childhood sexual abuse, that someone touched you. That's it. You don't, yeah. you don't do the other ones. What we know is that if you have suffered childhood sexual abuse, that is also physical and emotional abuse. Mm -hmm. You're already up to three. You can't have that one without having all three. You're at three already. But yeah. because of the language that we use and the lack of information that we have, we don't teach people to check all three. Yeah. They only check one. Yeah. Right? That's so. Funny. So anyway, so yeah, so that's what ACEs is. Yeah, I mean, and, and I think that, you know, just to that point, that's why I think it's so, it's crazy that the medical field isn't saying like, this should be part of what we're asking when we are, you know, consulting with patients and looking deeper at that. Because I know so many people that have uh, complex trauma, right? CPTSD, yeah. um, that have crazy medical issues that a lot of times are just like they can't figure out you know these are the yeah. situations where you have these chronic illnesses that you know you go to the doctor and they do all these tests and they can't figure out what it is or they turn into these autoimmune disorders that they can't figure out how they can't you know and then you look at the person's history and you see the amount of trauma and it's like exactly. you know connecting those dots so i think that it's so important that we look at this holistically and realize that that emotional, psychological healing is going to incredibly impact positively, hopefully, their physical and, and mental well-being, right? And, and this is why I'm always talking about, yes, the healing sounds like it's a scary process. I think a lot of people are like, if I just don't think about it, if I forget about it, if I don't deal with it, 
it's just going to go away and I can just live my life, you know, much like you were talking about with your marriage and like love is going to fix it. You know, love is just going to heal everything. And love is important. I mean, don't get me wrong. Healthy relationships are important, but a lot of times we, we can't even distinguish what a healthy relationship is if we haven't done that healing. Right. And then we find ourselves in these uh, toxic relationships that just perpetuate the trauma. And so to anyone who is, you know, cause I hear this a lot, survivors are afraid of either going out and finding support because they're afraid of opening up a can of worms, right? They're, they're afraid of what that healing is going to do or feel like it can feel scary when you've been trying to, you know, avoid the topic and now you're putting it front and center. Um, but then also there's the fear of someone's not going to be able to help me. If I go see someone, they're not, you know, maybe I tried already and it didn't work. So I'm beyond help. What do you say to, to those survivors who are afraid or feel like they're beyond that help? No one is beyond help and no one goes through the entire healing journey successfully without help not that there's an end to the healing journey but at some point along the line like it's you're de- I would say like not even you need it you are deserving of it mm-hmm. like you are deserving of inviting some someone in to help you process this pain we went through it alone as children as it is we don't we deserve to have support as a, as an adult and so unfortunately the field as it is still is lacking in a lot of resources for adult survivors. Oftentimes we've been told to see someone who is trauma informed that may or may not help people who are trauma clinicians who are trauma informed really means they've had the kind of training to understand how the brain is affected because Mm -hmm. of trauma. That's important information. But again, like the ACEs study, it's flawed in that it doesn't look specifically at the experience of someone who has, uh, who is a survivor of, of childhood sexual abuse. So it's not, the trauma is the trauma, but getting back on track and having your experiences open up is one thing. It's one thing for to have someone who is trauma informed teach you and, and, and empathize with you about how your brain has developed differently. That's important to know. That helps with sort of the, the shame, maybe the guilt. It doesn't really necessarily give you space for people to understand you. Like I said, for me, they don't have the information to say, oh, right. No, it's not only is it not only is it not your fault, but I want you to understand that the average number of violators is three. You need people to understand that. Mm -hmm. People need to bring you information about your experience, not just about your brain, but about your experience in this. People need to understand what grooming is. People need to understand that when you say, yes, I feel like I don't wanna be here because I feel so small. They need to understand that feeling of shrinking to fit in to your life and what it means when you say there's a period of time or right now today is so bad. I don't want to be here without you calling 911. Because if we call 911 on every survivor who has suicide ideation, no one will come to you. Mm-hmm. We have to know when to call 911 and when to hear it. Yeah. But we've been told so many times 
that our, people are afraid of our pain. They're afraid if we say, I don't want to be here. Someone needs to be able to hear that for us. Mm. And if you can't hear that, because that's going to make you frightened instead of saying, so here's, for example, what one of the things I, I say, and this, and when I say, I say, it means I say it. I'm not recommending anybody say that if you don't have the experience to back it up. Mm-hmm. When survivors come to me and the work that I do, when they say, I don't want to be here, I say, good. Now the work is ready to begin. Mm. What will it take? What would it take for us? Because they say, I, I just want to die. I say, great. What needs to die? Because mm-hmm. now all we have to do is figure out what needs to die. All we have to do now is figure out what is it that you don't want to be here? What if we could get rid of that and keep you alive? That's mm-hmm. what people really want. That's you powerful. And that. But you have to understand that. You can't say that if you don't understand it. Mm-hmm. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, well, and so I, I, what I'm hearing you say also is that someone really needs to understand childhood sexual abuse in yeah. order to really help someone who has that ha- has had that experience. And I, I truly believe that also. I, you know, I've um, always talked to people about, like, you really do need to to connect with someone who understands that experience. And that's one of the reasons why um, I decided to start doing this work with survivor parents, right? Because it's such a different experience. I remember starting to try to teach this initially wanting to share about the importance of abuse prevention education with all parents, but there's parents out there who are like, oh, that de- that's never happened in my family. That That's never going to happen. That doesn't happen in my neighborhood. That doesn't happen in my family. Um, without realizing it probably has happened in their family. Maybe people just aren't talking about it, but you hit this wall of uh, denial. And then you talk to parents who are survivors and they're like, oh, it, it can happen anywhere at any time, anywhere. And I am not put, you know, taking my eyes off my child. And th- those are two very different parenting experiences, right? And when right. I'm speaking to parents who are survivors, I understand that fear because I went through it myself. My mom went through it. My sister's gone through like. It's a completely different experience. And if you're talking to, to an educator who doesn't understand that fear, right? And how, like, how do you overcome those triggers so that you can keep teaching your kids instead of stopping and, and just you know, reverting to, I'm just gonna like be a hawk because that doesn't serve their, you know, their children later on in life, which is what happened with me. But you know, this, is, this is why I think it's so important that when you're working with someone, they understand child sexual abuse specifically. Yeah. So I completely agree with what you're saying. And that's powerful too, what you were just saying just now about, you know, what is it that does wanna die? Because it's not the person, it's the experience that they're feeling that they don't wanna feel anymore because it's so painful. And I never looked at it that way, but that's that's really powerful and speaks to the point of why working with someone who understands that particular kind of trauma is who's going to most likely help you the best, right? Um, talk to me about your community because you know you started this a while back, and I would love to to know more about that. And how are people engaging in it? What what are the experiences that they're having? Like you know, going from maybe not being believed and not having a place to talk about what happened to them, to then being in a place where you're embraced, accepted 
and given that space to you know share about your experience in a way that you were never able to before thank you for asking that so there is a there are several layers to what i do and so i'll try and put them in order kind of so when i started talking trees online on facebook it still exists there's over seven thousand people which isn't a gazillion people but that's a lot Mm -hmm. it's an open community it always has been anyone can join anyone right so there is no oh go through these and, and check this box like no it's open community what's interesting of course when i started that people said that's crazy what kind of violation is that blah 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 and i said this is what survivors need the reason it's open is because survivors don't want to be identified as survivors so I don't, so I don't need to ask you about your history. This is the other thing, like in order to get help, you have to prematurely trust someone mm -hmm. with these things and these questions that people ask that they haven't deserved, they haven't earned the right to know, further humiliating you and bringing this shame up that you're not ready to gift someone with, right? And so I wanted to lose all barriers to help seeking. Mm. And so there's, there's nothing, the interesting piece about that, that, that played out better than I even expected was that one, because people know it's open. I do very little monitoring. If you've ever been on some of those sites, you see how messy they can get mm -hmm. with what people post, right? Mm -hmm. Because talking trees has always been open people are way more conscious about what they post, way mm -hmm. more conscious. And so we always focus on the healing journey, victimization. So that's been one really important point. So because it's open, because people know anybody can see their comments, for many, many people, it is the only way that they live openly. Mm. It's their only evidence to themselves that this exists. And by that, I mean, some of them, sometimes they'll change their name to participate. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they, sometimes they, they open up a different account, whatever. But whatever they do, it's a way for them to step into the waters and, you know, their toe into the water of what it can be like to have this expression. Mm-hmm. Some of them use their real names, but never post anything. But just by being in a community where people are survivors, they, it's a teeny taste of what it is like to be, to live openly. Because we never require anybody to live openly. We support survivors in living openly and we invite them because we may be the only space that ever invite you to live in your truth. Mm -hmm. So in a world that's trying to silence you, we invite you into your truth right and so thanks so that so that's there and it's open and so that's that's the attraction of it for people people can do whatever they want in that space they can play with how they are how they are going to move into living openly if they ever do and feel accepted and know that they are never required to yeah right so that's public space i've always had that Last year, I made a big move because people had been asking me all along, like, I wish this were a group. I wish there were a group. I wish there were a private group. So last year, I finally created a private group. It's $15 a month. 
you have $15 a month <laughs> to have access to an expert, right? That's amazing. Yeah. Right. And so, and so in there, we, again, we have more personal discussions. People get to know each other. It's not 7,000 people, you know, uh, you're not worried about whether or not someone in your family sees you, that sort of stuff. And so that, so, and we, we, it mostly works as a, as a posting platform and I write discussions and lead discussions, that sort of stuff. But it's nice because it's written. You don't have to go in and meet any particular time. Like it's, you get to do it. You get to create your, your own healing journey in there and how you want to interact and participate just like you would uh, in social media platforms, but except for it's private. Mm-hmm. And so then this year or late last year, I started finally seeing clients one-on-one, which is what a lot of people wanted to do. So I also do see clients one-on-one in the eight week session. It's not therapy. It's not therapy. Most of my clients have already had therapy. So what I do with clients is take them through an empowerment program. Mm. We've been disempowered. We need to find our power back. And so, right. And so we go through an empowerment program. Of course, you are you, whatever issues you bring, issues you bring. We, so we turn over, look at what the issues may are still related to sexual abuse. So wherever you are. So the beauty of that is that it accommodates you wherever you are on your healing journey. But what we know is that at the end of eight weeks, you're going to be more empowered than you were before. Too many times therapy ends up just being listening sessions. Mm-hmm. That's what I found when I've gotten to my next level of, of, of healing. It was great. I, I needed that. I needed someone to help me process and get through all that. What I realized eventually is that I, I'm great. I'm not having triggers. Uh, I've done what I needed to do in terms of creating boundary, blah, blah, blah. But there was still something missing. And it took me a long time to realize what was missing was going on in my life in an empowered way. It took me a while to to understand that my power had not been restored. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that's what I focus on with all of my clients, whether they're survivors or not. So in psychology, we know what empowerment looks like. We know what quality health looks like, but we don't teach it. Mm-hmm. We sit there and listen, but we don't teach our clients what we're looking for, what tool, you know, so empowerment is about, I'm going to give you these tools. Everything right. here is transparent here. Here's, here's what Eagle defenses are. Here's how you use them. Here's how you should understand them. Here's what cognitive dissonance means. If you look for it like this, here's what guiding life principles are like. So we have, we go through these, these uh, modules, so to speak, so that people can get, can really then track a healing journey for themselves. Mm. And at the end of those eight weeks, people can decide if they still need me or not, but you will have some tools to understand what you, what you can do to live as an empowered person, not just as someone who's not, 
who's no longer having triggers. Yeah. So you can start thriving. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I love that. And it's, and you know, it's so true because I think people are afraid of just going to therapy and like unpacking all this stuff and then what, you know, and then like you've unpacked it, but now what, you know? And I think that uh, for me, when I teach parents, like part of what I love seeing is that when you're teaching your kids and helping them become empowered, it, it's like it transfers to you because you realize all the things that I couldn't do when I was a kid, I'm, I'm empowering my kids to have these tools, you know, like you said, and when, when survivors are going through a healing journey, that's what part of, you know, that the, the healing needs to happen is tooling up is like yeah. putting in place the things that are going to help you manage those difficult moments because they, you know, just because you go to therapy and you quote unquote start healing doesn't mean that everything magically goes away. If anything, it might actually get worse for a certain amount of time. Um, I remember when I first started going to therapy and um, feeling like I went to a hypnotherapist specifically because I wanted, like I had blocked memories and I didn't necessarily want to open those up, but I did want to understand certain things. And I remember um, that through that process, things did start coming up sort of organically, not during the sessions, but later. And she had given me tools, you know, I had some things in place that I could um, use to manage that when I wasn't in therapy, when I was on my own, and it got scary, and it was uncomfortable. And it was like, you know, I don't know if I want to deal with this, but because I had the tools, I was able to deal with them and then overcome them and, and realize, wait a minute, I don't have to be afraid of that because it's not happening anymore and and how to train my brain to actually uh, remind myself that I'm here in the now and, you know, like a lot of mindset work, right? But if you're not getting that in therapy because all you're doing is unpacking, you're kind of left like you just opened up the wound again, but you're not putting any medicine on it, right? And And I think that a lot of the things that I see, which I, I'm not for, is when it's like, okay, we'll start taking this medication, but then that person doesn't continue to do the work of getting other tools to, because you don't want to get, you know, um, trapped in this cycle of, you know, I, I'm just putting a bandaid on it and not necessarily like actually doing the healing of that wound. And, and so I love what you're talking about with empowerment, because I'm all about that. Like, I think that we, we have to reclaim that, right. We feel like we lost it a lot of times, either because, you know, family members took that away in one form or another, we still have it inside, yeah, but we we don't realize it because it was uh, we were we were deceived really, you know, about what where our power was and don't realize we still have it, you know. So I love 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 all the work that you're doing. Um, I could talk to you about this for hours, and I know that um, you know we we have so many things in common. This this is one of the reasons that I wanted to bring you on because I I heard you speak. Um, I love the fact that you specifically talk about child sexual abuse. You know, with, when the Me Too movement happened, I was only hearing about adult survivors, right? Like sexual assault, sexual abuse. Nobody was talking about child sexual abuse. And I feel like, you know, it's always been dealt with as like the secret thing that people still don't want to talk about. And I'm like, this is where it starts in many cases, you know, and like, to your point, when there's three people, I didn't realize that. Cause like, just when you were talking about it, I started realizing like that happened, like I have three, 
And I didn't realize it. Like first it was, you know, my father, then it was when I was 17, there was date rape. Um, and then uh, it almost happened again when I was an adult, but I was able to, um, there, were, there was a specific situation. I was able to get out of that situation, mm -hmm. but it would have happened again. And, and I, I started to identify that finally. And I think that's when I wanted to start realizing like I have boundaries that I can uphold. And that was the first shift when I realized like, wait a minute, I have my power. I, it wasn't taken away and I don't have to. And then right. when I became a parent and the fears um, you know, that are uh, uh, like subliminal unconscious kind of stuff started bubbling up and I had to use the tools that I, you know, had, had gotten. So tools are so important. I love that you talk about that. Is, is that a program that you do regularly? Like your eight week program that you were talking about? Yeah, that's a, that's a one-on-one. It's okay. one-on-one. Yep. Oh, okay. Okay. Fantastic. Well, so how can people connect with you? Um, if they want to work with you, where can they find you? What is the best way to reach you? And I will, of course, put this all in the show notes as well, but what's the best way that you like for people to connect with you? Rosina Bakari. Um, when they look at my name, they'll see uh, rosinabakari.com is the easiest way. And then there'll be some links on there. I'm also on Instagram as Rosina Bakari. So those are okay. the ways. And in my Instagram, there's a bio link that will get you to some other resources, but. Okay. And you're on Clubhouse now too. So I am on Clubhouse <laughs> as Rosina Bakari. So yeah. yes, in Clubhouse. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's really powerful too, because I love hearing you talk and share, um, you know, your wisdom on the topic. So thank you so much for the work that you're doing. It's so valuable. Um, I will also put links to the group um, and, you know, all the different ways that people can connect. So if you're listening or watching this, please be sure to check the show notes um, so that you can connect. And uh, just thank you so much for this, this work. Oh, we, my I pleasure. Really appreciate thank it. you. Thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you. Important. Well, I would love for anyone who's listening to this, uh, who felt that they got value or want to share this with others, because we all know survivors, whether we realize it or not, so sharing this out would really help someone. So please be sure that you screenshot this, post it on Instagram and your stories, let us know what was your best takeaway or just say, you know, I wanna share this because it's important and we all need to support survivors and to create spaces for them to share and be heard. Um, so please tag us and let us know. We would love for you to spread the word. So thanks again for tuning in and we will connect with you again in the next episode. Bye everyone. Bye, thanks. Don't miss the next episode. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast. And I would be so grateful if you took one minute to post a five-star rating and reviews on iTunes so that others can also find this information. I will be shouting you out and thanking you on the next episode. If you found this useful, be sure to share it with others as well. Let's continue to create consent culture, one conversation at a time. Stay empowered.